Hey everybody, this is Daniel Patrick, and this is episode number 80 of the Mandolins of Beer podcast, brought to you in part by my favorite website, the Mandolin Cafe. How is everybody doing? Hope you're doing good. Week started off good Sunday night, that Nickel Creek live stream. That was fantastic, man. What a great mix of tunes. They did the first half of their uh, of their first album, their first major label album anyway. So good, and then just a great random selection of tunes. Uh, Chris had all sorts of cool, you get the bazooki and a mandola, and of course the the lore, so it was a really good time. Also, Jared Walker was crushing it. I watched the uh, the first night of that Billy Strings live stream at the Capitol Theater. They did five or six, I think tonight is the last night, and it's free on Twitch, I believe, so check it out. Jared's, man, just every time I see that dude playing, he's getting better and better as well. Um, thank you guys for checking. Thank you guys for submitting questions. That was awesome to have some, uh, some, um, some fan questions for, for Andrew this week on these albums. They were great, man. And I think he really enjoyed them as well. I might have to do that a couple more times here in the future. That's great stuff. So thank you for doing that. You can also, if you, if you're on Instagram, that's where I posted it. I guess I could probably post it to the Facebook as well. Uh, so I can let you know next time I'm doing it, but thank you so much. And sorry if I didn't get to your question, there were more than I thought. Um, let's get to the sponsors and get into the episode. Peghead Nation. Peghead Nation streaming video courses and mandolin, guitar, banjo, fiddle, dobro, ukulele, and bass. You'll learn bluegrass, old time, and other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in Roots Music. PegheadNation.com features a great lineup of mandolin instructors with courses, including beginning mandolin, intermediate bluegrass mandolin, and also the Bluegrass Improvisation course with Sharon Gilchrist, bluegrass mandolin jam favorites, and the advancing mandolinist with Joe K. Walsh. Monroe-style mandolin with Mike Compton, melodic mandolin tunes with John Reichman, he gets a shout-out this episode, chord melody mandolin with Aaron Weinstein, Irish mandolin with Marla Fibish, and theory for mandolin and fiddle with Chad Manning. Courses include high-quality multi-angle video lessons, downloadable notation and tab, play-along tracks, and plenty of tunes and songs to play, and get your first month for free. Just go to pegheadnation.com and use the promo code MANDOLINBEER, all one word at checkout. Northfield Mandolins. Let's build more than a mandolin together. Check out their website at northfieldmandolins.com. Download their app at mandosummit.app for lots of special performance recordings, demonstrations, and special workshops. And of course, check out their Instagram for some of the finest photos of mandolins you're going to find on the internet. Uh, also, Ear Trumpet Labs. Again, I love this mic. I love this mic, and I've been doing some uh, some recording of some instrumental tunes with this mic, and I'm absolutely loving it. They hand-build the microphones in Portland, Oregon. They're works of art. They're beautifully designed. They have great feedback rejection for live use, and they're the most natural tone you'll find for acoustic instruments. Check them out at eartrumpetlabs.com. Today, they also have a killer Instagram. And Ellis Mandolins, handcrafted mandolins designed and built in Austin, Texas. I still think about the Ellis that I played when I was at their shop, one of Tom's uh, mandolins he made for himself. It was a beaut. So, all right, let's get into it here with Andrew Marlin, two incredible albums, and we're going to talk about them and some other things here. Thanks for listening, everybody. Be sure to hit subscribe, leave a review, and talk to you all soon. Cheers, everybody. All right, now I'd like to welcome back to the podcast. You are uh, you are now neck and neck with Tristan Scroggins for appearances. Uh, Andrew Marlin, how's it going, Andrew? Uh, it's going great. Glad to be back. Man, glad to have you back. Congratulations on the release of two incredible albums, man. It's they're they're beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, it feels good to get them out, and uh, you know, it's always nice to talk about them too you know especially uh especially the instrumental music because it's so so wide open you know so let's let's take it there let's see what see what we can come up with yeah i mean honestly the only questions i i, I solicited some questions from from listeners but i wanted to kind of leave it wide open as well because again like um in, you know just before we started i was saying i i can't even really pick necessarily a favorite track because i just listen to the the album and when the album ends i either listen to the next album or i listen to the album over again <laughs> you know <laughs> it's so it's so cool and it's pretty dude it's very rare i mean buried in a cape anybody who plays an instrument would be lucky 
to write an incredible album like that. You know what I mean? And then you put out two brand new albums, just as strong in the same month. You know, obviously they were recorded at different times, but these, I mean, geez, you're... Uh, Talk about make a guy jealous of your tone. I mean, you make me want to work. <laughs> you want to. You make me want to sit down and just play and listen to notes <laughs> and work at them, man. Yeah. <clears throat> well, there's a lot of that happening around the house. You know, I'll do that. Um, is just sit down and and play very few notes. You know, and just work on how to get that tone out of the instrument. You know, and and one person that really inspired me to do that is Grisman. Obviously, like Grisman's tone is like. I feel like the be all end all for me in terms of mandolin tone. And, you know, you get that with pick angle and I never knew that until, I don't know if you know John Stickley or not from the John Stickley trio. Yeah. Yeah. I actually played a gig in Michigan one time where they were on the uh, bill. They're great. Yeah. I, they're incredible. And I, John was one of the first people I met when I moved out of my hometown up to Chapel Hill. And he, he's the one who turned me on to pick angle. I had no idea, you know, I was just starting to pick and, uh, he basically showed me that depending on the angle of your pick, you can get a completely different tone out of your instrument without having to hit it any harder or softer, you know, and that blew my mind. And so I, I mean, for, I guess almost 12 years now, that's, I've been focusing on that a lot, you know, like how to, how to utilize those tiny little movements to change up the tone of the instrument. I was um, watching a video on the YouTube last night, actually. Um, oh, my gosh, I'm trying to remember who you were playing with. It was out front of Bill Monroe's old house in North Carolina. Oh, yeah, uh, Tommy Edwards. Yeah, Tommy Edwards. Man, what a great set of tunes you guys did on there, and you had the the oval hole on that one. And part of the reason mm -hmm. why I was watching that is because I just bought one, and I was nice. <laughs> extra inspired. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, man, I can't wait. And, yeah, I was just really watching, like, your right hand is so uh, – so cool to watch, man. And you're very, you seem very thoughtful, you know, and, and, and no wasted notes. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know how much of that is uh, on purpose and how much of that is just <laughs> due to <laughs> not knowing what the other ones are. Um, but yeah, that, that was a super fun set. I love playing with Tommy. He's like, that dude, you know, if you have a three hour gig with Tommy and you play for three hours, there are no set breaks, you know? Um, and he's just, He's been doing it a long time, and I feel like every time I sit down with him, it's a lesson. And uh, yeah, that that set turned out great. I I didn't know. I I guess because we were going to be playing in front of Bill Monroe's house, part of me wanted to play the lore. But there's a really cool um, thing that the A2 brings to a duo setting, where it almost has this guitar-like tone to the rhythm of it. And so it it seemed to work pretty well for the duo, and you know made that a really fun set. Were those just were those the two vocal mics? Were they using that for vocals and mandolin that they had out there? Or the two mics that they had up? Shouldn't say vocal mics, I guess. Yeah, they were just uh, there was just one mic in front of me, and then one in front of Tommy, and that was picking up everything. Yeah, picked up beautifully. That's a, I mean, it sounded amazing. Cool. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, these albums, and, and again, one thing I recommend to anybody if you haven't done this already is if you haven't listened to these albums. On headphones, you're missing a, a good percentage of even more, you know, how much more amazing these albums are. Like, if you're already enjoying them and you haven't listened to them on headphones, holy cow, man, there's just such great interplay. The mix, the tone, and everything is just, it's a great listening experience. And how, so when you're, when you're mixing something like that, how much time do you put in, or I, I mean, I guess we could probably even use these albums as an example. Um, you know, when you, when you think of that stuff, cause it seems like it's thought out, how much time do you put into that? Uh, into the mixes? Mm -hmm. Um, well, not, not much time at all, actually. Um, so I think the way I like to record is all live, you know? And so we basically, the band is mixing themselves. And so the thing that I like to do is pan it out in a way where everybody, you can kind of, if you close your eyes, you can see everybody in the stereo field. Um, and so that like on Fable and Fire, those are the rough mixes from the studio. We basically, um, you know, just ran them off, ran them back through the board. I, I sat down at the board and kind of moved the faders based on who was taking a solo just a little bit to give them a little bit more juice, you know, and, uh, took those home and those ended up being the mixes. Like everybody liked them. I really dug them and, uh, 
you know, we put just a little bit of reverb on there, um, brought in a lot of the room mics as well. So you could get this very roomy sound. Um, and it seemed to do it, you know, without much back and forth or much really thinking about it, you know, like, I feel like that's a testament to the way everybody played together. So let's talk. So did you have, how did you decide to release the witching hour first? Um, I recorded that one first, so it just seemed right, you know, and I think, I think for me, like the witching hour, I mean, you never know how people are going to take these things and, and which ones are going to latch on, you know, but, uh, if any, <laughs> but, uh, I think for me, the witching hour was such a conglomerate of tunes. I kind of was just like, all right, here's a record. But like Fable and Fire was kind of like my baby. You know what I mean? I was like, I was really stoked on that one and the way all the songs came together and, and the fact that it was a bigger band, you know, there was just that much more energy put into it. And uh, yeah, it made sense to put out the witching hour because I feel like to put out Fable and Fire first would have been less epic than uh you know the way i ended up doing it so yeah fable and fire definitely has a very um uh, but does that first track i mean the first time i listened to it i was blown away it just sounded how it just goes from like this build build builds and then you get to the middle and it's kind of like the mandolin trickling in again and oh geez louise man (laughs) i love it cool thank you yeah yeah um one of the here's a question from a listener um, did you approach tone and mix different for each album and why? Well, we're kind of talking about these things. Um, no, it's mainly just like, you know, I think the main difference would just be how everybody played together and, and what the tune called for. Um, I kind of try to have the same approach to every record I'm involved in, which is just play it live, you know, and capture that. Make sure that first and foremost is the human experience of people playing together. And I, I think outside of that, um, you know, it's just how everybody played would be the main difference. And you've got, I mean, you've, you've got that pretty great established lineup. I mean, the guitar is a little bit different than obviously you have a different guitar player on, um, on these albums, actually two, two guitar players on, on each album. So that's a little bit different than your last lineup, but it still sounds so cohesive. Yeah, I I wanted Josh and Jordan because they they both they play very different, you know, and um they but they're also both very great listeners. And so I feel like, you know, when when Josh would take over the main drive of the rhythm, Jordan would kind of figure out something else to do and vice versa. And also, I mean, Josh ended up playing some banjo and piano and a little bit of twelve string as well, which I thought was a nice texture. Um and Jordan you know, of course, on Fable and Fire, I ended up playing a good bit of bazooki as well. Um, and messing with some opening, open tunings as well, which I thought brought a really cool vibe to these songs because it just it kind of enhanced the, you know, the drony nature of some of these tunes, I thought. And actually, that's another question a uh, listener has here is, did you have in mind, like when Josh and Jordan, when you were picking the tunes at who was going to play what, did you already have that in mind or did it work itself out as you were running through tunes? Uh, it kind of worked itself out as we were running through tunes. Like, um, I basically just show up with a vague idea of what I want, you know, the direction I want these tunes to go. And then it really starts to unfold and kind of present where it wants to go when the band starts playing it together. And I think for me, that's important with my tunes is I like to, you know, I don't want to force anything on anybody. You know, I'd rather figure out what's working naturally and go with that and figure out how to make it interesting within that frame. As we're talking of witching hour here at the moment, uh, somebody wants to know why is the hawk a mule? Well, the hawk is a Um, well, they have to have to get the mandolin orange live at ACL record. I tell the whole story. There. Oh, nice, man. Yeah. Excellent. Um, yeah, but it's a pretty funny story. 
cool, man. So that people go out there after this episode, once you finish yeah. listening to this, go out there and purchase that. And by the way, people should go, if you go to Bandcamp, um, you can get, you can pre-order the vinyl, you can pre-order the physical album, and then you can get currently the MP3 and FLAC versions of these albums mm-hmm. um, today. I think it's great that you're putting them both out on vinyl. That's going to be really cool. Yeah, that I'm still a sucker for that packaging, you know, and like having that just physical just representation of that artwork in your hands. Absolutely. And actually March 6th, um, I just got an email. Bandcamp is waiving all their artist fees on that day. So might be an extra reason for people to go out and buy all your stuff. So you make a little little bit more money. <laughs> Cool. Well, that's always appreciated after not touring for an entire year. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Absolutely. You guys going to do any more of those uh, tie-dyed mandal- more mandolin shirts? Um, maybe. That it was so much work to do those things, man. Yeah, it's an it's incredible how much like time and effort it takes to tie-dye something. So, I've got a whole new appreciation for, you know, walking around the festival and seeing these people with their whole tie dye stands up, like how much work goes into that and why they cost what they do because it, it's a lot of work. Yeah. Oh, so, put your yeah. forearms through the ringer. Yeah. No kidding. Uh, touring and playing music is a way, way more fun uh, venture. <laughs> For sure. There's a pretty good story. We talked a little bit about it and I read an article in American, I think it was American songwriter with you, but about, kind of what got you to get into the studio for Witching Hour. Yeah, so uh, we've done a little bit of talking about Beard in the Cape. When we made that one, it was at the butcher shop in Nashville, Tennessee, um, which was founded by John Prine. And it's just got this like really laid back, low-key vibe to it. Um, you know, um, Clint, the bass player, when he walked in there for the first time, he looked at me and said, I love this studio. It feels like you could touch anything in here. Um, because I feel like some spaces are so precious that it, uh, it's hard to really find your comfort zone. And the butcher shop was the antithesis of that. Like it, um, you just felt great as soon as you walked in there, you know? Um, and so, um, when I guess, yeah, it would have been June, Sean Sullivan, one of the lead engineers there called me up and said that the place was being sold and uh, was going to be turned into condos. And so he basically was like, if you want to make a record at the butcher shop before it closes, you better do it soon. So I called up Josh and Clint and Christian and asked them if they wanted to learn enough songs to make a record in a week's time. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, they said, sure. So we, uh, I sent them tunes or, you know, just gathered up enough. I think it was like 15 tunes. I sent it to them and they, they learned them all. We went in there and cut them all in three days and wow. ended up whittling it down to what it is. Yeah. And so we, so we all got together, wore masks, uh, you know, got, we're able to still play live, but, you know, do it in a way that we felt safe and, you know, um, I just had a great time. And I think you can feel that energy on that record, like how just elated everyone was to be playing music with someone else. Because by this time we were already like, almost five months into not seeing anybody or playing music with friends, you know, that, and that, I mean, that's something that I know I can, I think I can safely speak for everybody in the band and say it's something that we all thrive on. you know. And once again, Clint, by the way, just what feel. Yeah. <laughs> Both these albums, man. <laughs> I mean, it's so I'm glad. I'm okay. glad you appreciate his playing because it definitely, um, same for me. Like, you know, like I never want to not play with Clint. <laughs> yeah, I don't blame you. What was the hardest tune to come together on this album? Um, on Witching Hour or Fable and Fire? Uh, on Witching Hour. Okay. Um, I guess what would be the hardest one to come together on that one? Uh, the hardest ones to come together just didn't go on the record, <laughs> to be honest. Um, but um, I'm trying to just think through all the tunes really quick. They all they all laid out really easy. I think that's why I, I chose these songs, you know. Um, and 
I think I think one of the ones we spent the most time on arranging was that Jenny and the Dulock tune because you know Brittany kind of came in cold. We had we had already been in the studio for two days, and uh, Brittany Haas came in to play Twin Fiddles with Kristen on that tune, and you know we had to figure out the vibe and and make it make the arrangement make sense to where the song had enough like ups and downs to where the first time those twin fiddles came in it didn't just like all go down from there because that's such an effective sound um so i think when we finally landed on letting them play it through the second time and then i would take the minor solo josh takes the major solo and christian takes the minor solo Brittany takes the major solo and then the three of us me christian and Brittany all play the melody together at the end with actual three-part harmony was such a triumphant moment. Yeah, it just man, that's one of those tunes that like we I tried putting it different places in the record and like in the sequence and it just felt like after that tune it was like I don't really want to hear anything else, man. So <laughs> let's uh let's just put that one at the end of the record and, and let that one close it out. And I love the album cover. Oh yeah. <laughs> that was a that was one of those happy accidents. Emily took that on tour and uh she had she got her a film camera and has been taking some great photos. But that one just had a great vibe to it. The first time I saw it, I was like, do you, do you mind if I use this as an album cover? And she was really, really excited for me to do it. So yeah, it worked out. How did you, um, how did you come up with the title, uh, Witching Hour? How did, how did that come? I know obviously it's a song on the album, but how'd you make that the album title? a lot of these songs were born out of that like just late night hang when you know with a new babe and so um that title to me just seemed to kind of summarize the entire record any one of these songs kind of stand out to you as one that um came in a real i mean moment of inspiration or uh you know where you were just like oh this is just appeared out of nowhere or something like that yeah, actually, that uh, the first track, Fireflies and Fairy Dust. I had that melody, and I didn't have a beat part to it. And uh, I started trying to write that song because Christian, you know, made me learn all these songs in like E flat and F minor on his record when we did it. And so uh, <laughs> I was like, all right, I'm going to write a song in E flat for Christian. And uh, I got as far as an A part. And so we got to the end of the session and I was finally just like, you know, let's let's see what this feels like. You know, let's just play play this like a, a head and an out and then kind of in between. Let's just keep this really spacey just jam going um, where we just literally play with the negative space within the tune. And that ended up being my favorite track, you know, cause there was, there were no preconceptions. There was, there was no like, um, you know, specific vibe that I wanted to get. I just wanted to kind of see how it felt. And the first time we played it, it was like, hell yeah, that's it. That's the take. Let's <laughs> go with that. Um, so that was, that was definitely unexpected. And then how'd you come up with the tune? title Snowblind on Snoopy Hill. I 
that's uh, our sound guy, Mark Allspy, used to live in Michigan, and he was telling us about, you know, his days as a kid when he used to go sledding. And and I guess one of his favorite spots was uh, Snoopy Hill. And he, <laughs> like, in a moment of just inspiration talking about this, he, it's almost like you could see him picturing being there in his mind. He was just like, oh, yeah, you'd, you know, you'd be out there all day and find yourself snow blind on Snoopy Hill. And I was like, dude. <laughs> can i borrow that as a fiddle tune title because that's such a good album, uh, fiddle tune title and so he was really i think excited for me to use it and i'd already been working on that song that ended up becoming snowblind on snoopy hill on tour and so i played it for him i was like what do you think you feel like you're snowblind on snoopy hill when when i play this he was like hell yeah man. i'm right there <laughs> ah, that's great I'm from Michigan as well. He must have he must have grew up in a nice place. All like the snow hills that we had were all called like Dead Man's Hill or <laughs> not nothing so nice as Snoopy Hill. <laughs> yeah. Uh, apparently you could definitely get hurt on Snoopy Hill, so maybe it should have had a different title. <laughs> Was this all lore on Fable and Fire? Or on Witching Hour, I'm sorry? Yep. Nice. Uh one of the questions from a listener. Um, wonders, uh, why did you put a radius fingerboard on the lore? Um, it's just, they play easier, you know, and it was time to get a new fingerboard anyway. So I was talking to Lynn Dudenbostel about it and I was asking him all the ins and outs of it, you know, just cause he's, you know, for me, I've, I've got opinions of what I think I like and what seems to work for me, but I, I do think Lynn's been in it long enough and, um, you know, has enough experience to know what actually translates you know to to ease of playing and uh he was telling me that you know if if i wanted to play as easy as possible that a radius is the way to go and i definitely am not into fighting an instrument just on principle so <laughs> sure. um seemed to make sense and i should be getting it back soon i haven't haven't gotten it back yet and i'm i'm missing it i miss my buddy oh my gosh i can't imagine dude yeah. How how long have you been without it? Uh, about a month. Now. So I've been getting some playtime in with the Nugget, so that's been good. Um, and we did some did some videos for the for some of the Fable and Fire teams, and I ended up playing the Nugget on it, and it it sounds great and plays awesome. So when uh, have those videos come out yet? No, that should be coming out soon. Cool. Hell, that'll be great. Yeah. Any um any moments from the session that you can that you think back of fondly uh, as far as you know the making of this album? Uh, we're still talking about which an hour. Yep, still which about hour. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, you got to, got to you. That reminds me when you, when you say that um one of one of the my favorite questions is it's been days since Andrew has put an album out. When can we expect something new? It's <laughs> <laughs> funny. I was just asking myself the same thing. Um, uh, which an hour? I'd say Lake on the Island was my favorite track to record on this record, I think. Um, And when we hit that groove together, like uh, Christian dropped down to the low octave with me on the on the melody, and I hadn't really tried to play the melody on the low octave. I'd just done it on the high A and E string. Um, and so I figured that out right before we started tracking it. And, of course, Christian liked it. And, like, I don't know if he had worked on that or not, but he went down there with me. And when we hit that together, it just has this pulse to it that, to me, is, like, one of the closest – moments i'll ever come to like capturing something tim o'brien might actually put out you know um and when, as soon as we hit that i just everybody started just like you know head banging and smiling because it felt great you know i think they were smiling they were all wearing masks I, <laughs> I like to imagine everyone was uh cheesing out there did you video any of the sessions at all no i you know i should but that's one of those things where i get so in my head about like video and things like that, that I, it's hard to focus on what I actually want to focus on. And for me, when we go in there to make a record, I just want to focus on the record, you know? And 
But that's, we should record that because I'm sure in like 20 years when I've uh, had enough sledding accidents to where I might not even be able to play mandolin anymore. Um, I wish I had some of those videos. And you'd think it'd be so easy to do it now. I mean, I mean, with our phones, like they have such great cameras and actually decent microphones on them. Um, you know, it's like, why not just have it rolling all the time? Yeah, it's that pressure thing, though. It's the old red light. I guess if you forget it's running, you know, that might help. Yeah. But All right, so let's move on to Fable and Fire. And by the way, thank you for... Um, and, and your manager for, for hooking me up with copies of it a few weeks before they came out. Yeah, man. You know, right away I dove into Witching Hour, and that was kind of the one I was listening to to get into, and then Fable and Fire came in. I'm like, whoa. <laughs> I'm like, holy cow, man. So before we get into that, um, one of the one of the questions that came in was, what were you listening to to influence Fable and Fire? Um, A lot of different things. One of the big kind of catalyst for wanting to write this record is uh have you listened to that paul brady and andy irvine record um no um, man all right when we get off of, of this conversation do yourself a favor and go listen to that album i'm writing it i'm writing it down now It's it's got to be one of my top. It's probably my top album of all time. Oh wow! Um, they're they have such a unique take on Irish music, and they they bring in all of these other elements of, as well. You know, I know like Andy Irvine was one of the first people to bring the bazooki into Irish music, um, and so I think you know with that he just brought in like Greek styles of music and like. Uh, all kinds of stuff, you know. I mean, I wish I knew more of the l- lingo, but uh, but it's just a very interesting record to me that nowadays might not sound so groundbreaking because it's influenced so many people. But if you, it's like Dune, you know. If you read Dune, the storyline isn't that like mind blowing, but it's because like every pretty much sci-fi book that's been written since Dune has been based on this hero type, you know, in this narrative. And I think the same could be applied to this record that it's influenced so many people that, um, almost, you almost miss how groundbreaking it is. Yeah. Wow. Um, so, so yeah, so I've been listening to this record a lot and still listening to it a lot. Like it's uh, my daughter's favorite album. So I, even when I don't want to listen to it, I have to listen to it. Um, (laughs) Well, that's better than Baby Shark. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, and we've, we've tried to avoid those. Um, but, uh, you know, somehow another Baby Shark still makes its way into the house. Um, and so uh, it's probably somewhere on one of these records, honestly, like uh, accidentally. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so that, that record especially um, it was a big, big influence on this album. Uh, Tim O'Brien as well, like, I mean, come on. Tim O'Brien has got to be one of the most musical people of our generation. And I feel like he's able to able to do a lot of different things. But to me, when he plays, like really taps into that sent, like sentimental, more Irish zone is some of my favorite music ever. And, and so that was a big influence on this album as well. He just reissued um, that album, The Crossing, too. Cool, man. Yeah, that's a great one. One evening for pleasure I rambled On the banks of some cold purling stream Sit down on a bed of primroses And I gently fell into a dream I dreamt that I saw a Oh, did you have, I, I didn't ask that for witching hour. Um, did you have something in particular 
Um, I know when we talked about buried in a cape, kind of like the wild hog in the red bush was kind of like a, in the back, back of your mind. Did you have something for witching hour that you were kind of envisioning? Um, not really. Like they, those songs were written over the course of about two years. And so, um, it's hard to pinpoint, like there were a lot of different points where these songs were being written and what I was listening to. Um, I know like a lot of Grisman, you know, for that record, um, a lot of Jeremy Uden, this U D D E N incredible record, uh, called Plainville that he put out and that I, I feel like I'm like a disciple of that record. I keep pushing it. Um, and let's see what else, you know, that song, uh, I think maybe it's called Nostalgia, but it's by Tazetta. What's the name of it? Huh. No. Uh, let's see. You're going to send me on really a – yeah, do it. You're going to – you're making my afternoon easy now after this. Let <laughs> me listen to music. It looks like Mulatu Estatke, M-U-L-A-T-U-A-S-T-A-T-K-E. The name is Tazetta, and then in parentheses it says Nostalgia. So I'm not sure if like Tazetta means Nostalgia. Talk about a just a trance. Like put that record on, or put that song on, and close your eyes and see where you are at the end of it, and that's going to be awesome. Unless um, unless you're driving, we should make that clear for people. <laughs> if you're right, listening. yeah. <laughs> do, do not get in a trance while driving, <laughs> <laughs> or riding a slit. Yeah, right. um, <laughs> um, yes, definitely pay attention. Um, so yeah, that was a big influence. Um, just the vibe of that tune um, in general. Uh, let's see. What else was I listening to? A lot of John Reisman. Um, you know, Reisman also, I feel like, makes his way into all of my tunes. He's such a good tune writer. Um, actually, one of the one of the songs on Fable and Fire was written uh, called The Jaybird. Uh, basically, when I finished that tune, I was like, did I just rewrite a Reisman tune? So <laughs> I sent it to John. this isn't one of your songs is it and it's, it's like no you're safe man you're good and so like sweet so i called it the jaybird just because it made me think of him so much and let's dig into uh fable and fire and and, and the first track in particular uh stormy point which goes into back beyond and then the seamstress i mean again man when i <laughs> when i first put this on i this is like a double take and um it just just the way it grows and then change. Uh, I'd love to talk about this track, <laughs> like yeah. how you came up with it and the parts and, and how you figured out to put them together. It's, it's, it's just, it is an incredible tune. Um, those, yeah, they were all written separately. Well, first I should say, you know, the whole record from start to finish was written in about four weeks. Um, 
And I just, I had this like just surge of tunes that came out. Um, when I got that Gibson A2, that 1921, all of these are written on that mandolin. And uh, I didn't, obviously, I recorded the first track, like Stormy Point, the slow part of that tune. Um, I recorded that on Gale is the A2's name. I've been calling it Gale. Um, and, uh, but then the rest was on the lore. And then the last track as a little bookend, oh, Old Pine Box was also recorded on Gale. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I, I wrote, I, I think of them kind of like as four tunes, but the back of beyond is kind of those two put together right in the middle. Um, and so, yeah, I wrote Stormy Point, the very first tune at the beach. I was watching this. I, I talked about it in that little essay I wrote about it. Um, but I was watching the storm come across the ocean. And I don't know if you ever watched a storm out at sea, like from a long ways away. But you can see all this crazy lightning just all of a sudden lights up these really intense looking clouds. And then when it goes away, all of a sudden it's just black again. Um and so it's like this, these little snippets of detail just like hit your eyes and then it completely disappears. And it's this odd sense of just like, I don't know, just magic, you know, is the best word I can think of right now. Um, and then right up, you know, if I looked up, it was just the clearest sky you've ever seen. And because we were down at the end of this little point on the beach, there wasn't many, uh, there wasn't much light pollution. And so you could basically see every star that you can see from where I was and it was a weird, weird mix of skies going on, you know, um, and just an odd energy to where I was sitting. And so I started writing this tune and by the time I finished it, you know, lightning was striking all around me. And uh, actually <laughs> I felt the heat off one bolt of lightning, which scared the hell out of me. And that's when I, I determined that the song was finished and I went inside. Um, <laughs> and so that was, that was kind of the first tune that I wrote for this batch of songs. Um, and so I, uh, yeah, decided then I was like, man, this has got a cool feel to it. I want to try and write some other stuff to go with this. Um, and then the second tune I ended up writing like a, the day before we went into the studio. Um, well, I should say the first time, you know, we made this record twice. Um, really? Sorry, I was yeah. taking a drink of water when you said that. I'm oh, trying good. not to spit it back in the glass. <laughs> <Yeah>. What? <laughs> um, yeah, so we, we made the record in like September with me and Christian and Jordan and Nat, just a four piece. And it didn't quite capture the vibe. Um, I, I wanted I wanted Clint on there and I wanted Josh. And so we ended up waiting and doing it again in December. Um, and so, yeah, that that middle section was one of the last sections to be written for Stormy Point. And the seamstress was actually going to be a really chill mandolin tune because I I wrote it trying to work with like this chord melody thing. Um, but then when I finally heard Christian play the melody of that tune, it was like, no, this is, this is going to be like, just a ballad, you know, just like straight up Groover. Um, and yeah, that, I don't, I don't think I ever really put the tunes together until just before the studio. Like I realized that they could all kind of fit together. And so when we figured out how to, you know, kind of piece them together, just like it turned into this one epic track. And when, we finally started figuring out the sequence. So I couldn't decide if I was going to separate them or keep them as one track. But then I thought like if these were ever, if somebody was listening on shuffle and these tunes got separated, it would do be a disservice to each of them. And so I just decided to leave it as one 11 minute long track. Sorry. That was a long, long uh, explanation. No, that's <laughs> great. I, you know, I, um, it, it, you don't even realize, like I was, when I first saw it, I was like, Whoa, 10 minute plus track and now i don't even realize it's that long though just because it's just i mean it is it is an epic it's like guns and roses epic <laughs> <laughs> that's funny yeah and you know i love uh on the first tune too and i basically just told nat and clint and christian i was like just treat this like a noise jam you know me and josh and jordan are going to hold down the melody and y'all just for the first like two to three times through the tune 
just be a storm, you know? And so they just went for it. And it has this very stirring feeling to it that in the studio, you know, when you're listening on these big speakers, you know, you can hear, you know, if you ever listen to this record uh, through a system that has a sub, like Clint's bass and like the way he's doing the bows, it literally sounds like there's a storm right above you. Wow. I'll be killer on vinyl, man. Yeah. Yeah. I'll be excited to get it out on vinyl. There's um, but there's bazooki on this album that Jordan plays. Uh, somebody asked a question about, do you own a Mandela or, or Mandela, <laughs> a Mandola? <laughs> and do you ever uh, write on a Mandola? I, I do not own a Mandola. I'm borrowing a, a trillium Irish bazooki right now from a friend that I love and eventually might end up buying just because it, it's such a cool vibe, you know? And so I've been doing a lot of writing on it and, uh, you know, just getting to know that scale length, man. It's like, there's some stretches in there, but, uh, it's, it, I'm starting to get more and more comfortable with it. So yeah, again, that Andy Irvine and Paul Brady record turned me on to that bazooki sound, you know? I cannot wait to listen to that album. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it sounds like it's been like a, a game changer for you. Oh yeah, for sure. That's one that like that Eli always preached the gospel about. And uh, I remember he and I opened up for hot rise one time when they were in Raleigh and he and Tim O'Brien sat down and were just geeking out about that record. And I felt so out of the loop. I was like, man, I really need to know this album. And uh, I'm glad I finally have, you know, come to appreciate it for what it is. I love that you um, wrote Stormy Point as the first track of this album, and it leads off the album, too. I think that's really cool. It, it, yeah, it seemed to make sense, you know. Um, it, it's such a, just kind of an eerie, like, creep creeping in kind of sound, which I, I really like, and, and sets up the rest of the record for me. Sometimes there's nothing better to do when there's storms coming up, because we live, you know, probably three miles from the from the beach here, just to go out there and watch it roll in. Oh, my God, it's, yeah. it's insane. It is definitely insane. And then that, that feeling when it's all passed too, you know, and I, I was going to say, I think one thing that the, the second tunes of that medley kind of capture is that just really humid stillness after a, a summer storm on the beach where like you can still like water's dripping off the porch and you know, it feels like everything starts kind of peeking its head back out. Like, is it safe? <laughs> can we, are we good? Um, and to me, that song has that where it's just like this, like things are just starting to come back out after the storm. And it, yeah, I just like that, the feel of that. Yeah, that's right on because if I would, I would describe that mandolin coming in, that part is trickling in. Yeah. at 54 seconds into the tune Fable and Fire, this might be kind of specific, what is that sound? At 54 seconds yeah. in, you said? I, yes. Oh, that's my daughter. tracking this thing at echo mountain uh emily and ruby came up to just you know hang out in Asheville for a few days and do some hiking and uh they were upstairs you know it's this giant tracking room and uh they were waiting in the corner and of course you know emily was trying to get ruby to, to just be quiet and listen um but they have this huge plastic dog you know like the rca dog with the uh like looking there's the phone uh what's it the like the phonograph phonograph yeah the phonograph thing yeah and so they've got a like a three three to four foot tall plastic version of that dog uh at the studio and ruby was so stoked on that and so uh <laughs> she just kept talking about the big doggy you know um 
and and so you can hear Nat actually stop playing when she starts talking. And I was like, I looked at everybody. I was like, I shook my head. I was like, no, 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 keep going. Because um, I just knew, like, in the long run, I'm going to love being able to hear her little voice on there, you know, when she's all grown up. So, um, yeah, that's definitely one of the more sentimental moments on the record. Oh, man, nice. Um, Old Pine Box. Well, uh, what's mm-hmm. the, uh, that's, that's another, I mean, it closes out the album, but, um, that titles, you know, evokes certain images. How did, uh, how'd you come up with that one? That's actually the oldest tune on the record. I wrote that one maybe like five years ago, and I always wanted to find a place for it on an album. Never knew um, which one for it to go on, and that was also one of those like last minute additions um, where um, I wrote that for a friend of a friend who ended up, you know, passing away, and but knew he was going to die, and so he commissioned this company that that builds sustainable caskets and so he had to like go down and get fitted himself for oh this my casket gosh. and like yeah and and then my buddy ended up uh like using his van to carry his buddy you know on the final day to to the cemetery there where he was going to be buried Holy um cow. so you know um so there's a lot wrapped up in just that one you know, those three words, old pine box. But, uh, yeah, I, I wrote that for a friend of a friend who, who was really down, down in the dumps, obviously for losing his buddy. And, um, yeah, so it, it kind of, it kind of, it has a hopeful, hopeful tone to it. Yeah, for sure. Jeez, you can get measured. I'd be like, I'm five, nine. Can we just, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's already tough. <laughs> I know, man. That's Whoa. what a heavy thing to go do. Yeah. No kidding. Although maybe, you know, heavy, but maybe it's a, good way to kind of make peace with it though too i suppose yeah how did you um how did you make fable and fire the title of the album just the whole record to me has like this fantastic feel to it like fantastical fantasy just you know like i don't know like woodland kind of vibe to it and uh i thought uh, that that song in particular when that when it got written um kind of like you know same with witching hour um that song title to me like really embodied the entire record so I thought it best to call it that, and that's my favorite track on the album. So, thought I would. Uh... Was there? This is a nerd question. This this is beyond even mandolin nerd, but it's kind of word nerd. But uh, was there a reason for fable and fire with the ampersand instead of the letter and or the word and? Oh, it just seemed older. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I love it. I thought that same thing when I saw the title or the album title. Like, oh, yeah. cool. <laughs> That's next level nerdiness, though. I shouldn't probably expose that much of the nerdiness um, on a recording. <laughs> uh, you're in good company. Um, so you named um, your oval hole is named Gale. Uh, what's the name of your lore and your nugget? Uh, the name of the nugget is Tiki. Uh, after the fellow I ended up buying it from uh, had this dog pass away not too long ago and I uh, didn't have a name for the nugget yet, and so I called him up, and I was like, hey, man, you mind if I call the nugget Tiki in honor? And he was really stoked about that. So uh, I'm going to carry on Tiki's legacy there. Um, and the 
the lore is going through a bunch of different names. I've been trying to find a name for it for a long time, but it's kind of hard to pin down. And uh, my buddy Jerry, who actually is a guy that I wrote Old Pine Box for, um, it was his friend that ended up dying and measuring himself for the Old Pine Box there. Um, he always called it Pearl, and so Pearl is finally stuck, and that's the name of it. Yeah, Pearl. Nice. I love it, man. <laughs> So you're gonna are you gonna do any? Um, I mean, it's kind of weird to ask this question, I guess, because of all things considered. But are there going to be any if things get sort of normalized? Any sort of shows for these for these albums, like they just the Andrew Marlin band playing some acoustic dates? Yeah, as soon as we can, I definitely want to tour as much as I can on this. Um, you know, just if for no other reason, just to get this band together and and see what we come up with. Um, and so. Uh, I just, yeah, right now we're just kind of waiting, I think, like everybody else. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the questions, this doesn't have to do with the albums, but it asks, uh, what is your favorite venue? Uh, what is the venue? <laughs> Again, <laughs> yeah, <I> for, <laughs> it's been a minute. <clears throat> I've forgotten. Um, favorite venue? I, I don't know, man. Like, right now, any of them, honestly. Um <laughs> There's one called the Weinberg Center in uh, in Frederick, Maryland, and there it's one of those theater gigs where, like, you know, like Frederick. I didn't know anything about the town of Frederick, and uh, you know, it's not too far from Baltimore. But every show we've played there has been one of my favorite shows. It feels like the band locks in and has the best time playing. So, um, you know, maybe not the most epic venue ever um but it's a beautiful beautiful theater and it sounds incredible and we've always had really great shows there i hope you get out and get to do some touring here is there any is there anything from these two albums that you want to you really stick out for you uh, as far as you know i mean that's got to be a pretty amazing accomplishment and accomplished feeling to put out two of these albums so close together especially i mean it's uh it's pretty unheard of <laughs> <laughs> Um, I'm, I'm just glad people seem to be interested in it, you know, like I'm ready to put out another one. So, uh, so hopefully folks will stick with me there and, and want to hear these instrumental songs. I know like I've kind of made a career of writing lyrical tunes, um, you know, with, with Emily and the mandolin orange and, uh, and so it's really nice to put out these instrumental records and have people want to hear them and, uh, we'll go there with me and, and see them for what they are, which is like you know, very, very important for me. And I feel like I'm trying to say something with the mandolin and with these melodies. And it seems like people are receptive and open to that. So yeah, I think that's, that's my main takeaway from it is that I just, I really appreciate people going there with me. Dude, it's just, you're like, you're an anomaly of, I mean, the rare, the rare person who can write so many great tunes with words and without words. And they all seem to say so much it's uh it's impressive well thanks man you're gonna give me some fodder to keep going there <laughs> well man i'm uh, i've been a huge fan for years just absolutely honored that you would spend time and and, and talk about these albums and well man I, I appreciate you doing this and it's nice to get to answer these questions and talk about them so thanks for the platform and for being down to do it absolutely man all right, there we go. Thanks so much to Andrew for sharing some insight on those albums. Thank you guys who uh, submitted some questions. Be sure again, Friday, March 6th, not this Friday, but next Friday, Bandcamp is waiving the fees for anything you purchase. And that's huge. And especially, as Andrew said, for people who haven't been able to make a normal living when they're touring artists to do that, those little things like that make a difference. And I know a lot of people who have been on this podcast have albums on Bandcamp, uh, Thomas Castle and Ethan Satiwan and Joe Walsh and Andrew Marlin and John Reichman. So go out there and get them. Also, don't forget to check out my sponsors, Mandolin Cafe, Peghead Nation, Northfield Mandolins, Ear Trumpet Labs, and Ellis Mandolins. Cheers, everybody. Have yourselves a fantastic week. Mm -hmm.